Uh, meals with Jesus. So, as you can see, this morning I have a prop. I like having a prop now and then. Um, my name's Graham, by the way. If you're a visitor, I'll see a few faces I don't know. Um, I'm the minister here. But here we have um, one particular meal that Jesus would have eaten. Now, of course, all good meals start with dessert. So, we're starting with dessert. I'm going to just go away from my mic for a minute. That's going to throw our recording away, but they probably don't need to hear this next bit anyway. Okay, so here we have, I'm walking around because I'm hoping that someone might want to join with me. When someone might have some dates, when Jesus had dessert, we have something like this. Dates, some lovely looking pomegranates, looking a bit dry because I cut it up two hours ago, but that's okay. And there's some, some honey here. Perhaps they would have dipped these things in the honey, I'm not quite sure. Um, and the grapes, let's see. Hmm. The grapes are delicious. Um, would anyone like that though? Wilson family, would you like anything? Come on, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't try the pomegranate. Oh, okay. the, the dates were smuggled in to Australia from um, the Middle East. Um, <laughs> not smuggled in. We did, Michelle went through the uh, product customs line. They've been declared. They've been declared. Because they don't have um, any seeds in them, they're good dates, aren't they? So this is the sort of meal that Jesus would have had. Why are we doing this? Well, let's be honest, it's just an excuse to talk about Jesus and, and follow some, um, some accounts that happened in Luke's Gospel. But he did share meals with people and a lot of meals with people and they were very significant. So um, one of those significant meals that Jesus had was an invitation he had by a guy called Levi, a new Christian, started to follow Jesus and he got with his friends and he sat down, uh, Levi, a lot of particular friends, we'll get to that in a moment, and they ate together. I imagine, I reckon they would have had something like this for dessert. Anyway, next week, I'm not going to tell you what we're going to have, but next week will be interesting. Um, I'm going to give you a hint. It won't be in here prior to the service. And that could give you a hint of what I might do next week. We need to keep it well away from here until I bring it in. Hmm, interesting. How about I pray while you guess what that might be, that sort of food, and uh, we'll get into Luke chapter 5. Uh, just before I pray too, we're going to have a question and answer time at the end, or a comment time, just warn you about that. And if you do have a comment that you don't want to put your hand up for, um, then don't forget to use the comment cards, uh, which is the comment slips in our bulletins. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we thank you for this morning, we thank you for, for food, um, and we thank you most of all for Jesus. Lord, we pray as we... Uh, as we read your word today, that you would help us to put your words into practice, uh, help us to be challenged and encouraged. We ask, Lord, that you'd open our hearts and minds, help me to be clear as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Jesus hates religion. I wonder if you find that comment a little bit surprising. Maybe, maybe even find it a little bit offensive, I'm not, I'm not sure. Think to yourself, you can probably, I, I imagine you can think of uh, some people who hate religion. You might have friends like that, or you might, there might be groups of people who hate religion. But Jesus? Why would Jesus hate religion? So let's think about it for a minute. Let me give you a few examples. 
Religion says you need God. Sorry, I'll say that again. Religion says you need to find God. There's a difference, isn't there? Religion says you need to find God. Religion says that God will not love me until I obey his rules enough to earn his love. And this is a lifelong struggle, too, to, uh, to use the English translation of the Arabic word uh, used in Islam, jihad. It means struggle. That's what religion says. Religion is self-made. It's, uh, it's about self-righteousness. As long as I'm good enough, you know, uh, and because religion is based on how good or complying someone is, a religious person says, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not really sure where I stand before God. I don't know. I hope I've done enough. I hope I've been good enough. But if we get to know Jesus, as we read in our Bibles, the real historical Jesus, this Jesus we're going to meet in, over the next few weeks from Luke's Gospel, for example, you'll find that he actually says quite the opposite to what we read up there about religion. Religion, Jesus says, like these Pharisees who are very religious, these Pharisees turn people away from Jesus. It's no wonder we can say that Jesus hates religion. Well, today, in fact, we meet a man who turns his back on religion and he follows Jesus. But we also meet a group of religious people who think they don't need Jesus, who think, well, they're, they're already righteous, I'm already good enough, they say. Well, if you've got your um, outline in front of you from the, from the bulletin, that'll be helpful to have open, and also Luke chapter 5. Uh, the first point our outline says they're the call of Levi, how sinners get saved. I, I do like this little cartoon. Uh, it says down the bottom, there's a tax office. Uh, I'll be needing one of your legs as well. Uh, he's got his arm already. In the first century Roman Empire, no one liked tax collectors. They would take your arm and your leg if they could. In those days, the Romans subcontracted the collection of their impure revenue. So anyone who wanted the job of tax collectors, uh, of collecting taxes, would place a bid for his region, and the gig would go to the highest bidder. That's how it would work. The winner then paid off the government and then tried to levy as many taxes as he could. Anything he collected following the debt repayment or his bid being repaid, he could keep. I don't know if this is a helpful image of what a tax collector might have looked like in those days. It's probably not a very fair image the more I think about it, but I'm going to go with it anyway. Remember the old toll, toll booths um, when you crossed the Sydney Harbour Bridge? Uh, the young people wouldn't have even heard of these things. Um, but you had to actually stop your car, didn't you? you, you although if you're really clever, you're, I'd like to do this, I'd wound the window down and, and then keep going in second gear or something. Uh, but you really should have stopped and you placed it in either a basket or if it's really old school, you would give it to someone there would be a, tax, a, a, a toll collector. Um, there they were. And, and I remember as a, as a young fella, uh, I remember getting frustrated sometimes with my dad, who used to stop, well, it was actually mum mostly, um, who would use, who'd stop and have a conversation with one of these toll collectors. And there's this long line of people being like, Mum, you've got to keep going. There's 20 cars behind you. Um, but I also remember seeing all the coins and a few notes, but it's mostly coins. This, this person was surrounded by coins on their little desk and, and trying to give change and that sort of thing. Now, I wonder if that's a helpful image of what these people might have seen as a, as a tax collector. Now, it is a bit unfair because the toll uh, booth 
operators were doing the right thing and they weren't cheating on anyone. But tax collectors, no, no, they were getting as much as they possibly could out of, uh, out of anyone. So it comes as no surprise then that this uh, system of, of bidding and paying back the government and collecting taxes, and it came with very little regulation, well, it comes as no surprise then that it was filled with, with corruption. With all the different types of taxes a tax collector could collect, most tax collectors became filthy rich. They often took more than they had uh, any right to take. They were really known as hated thieves. They were the outcasts of society. These men were despised, and not just because they were greedy too, they were despised because they conspired with the Romans. They were considered traitors against the Jews. They were sinners against God, but also sinners against Israel. And because they had contact with the Gentiles, they're the non-Jews, the Jews considered them unclean, just like a leper. Don't touch them, don't go near them, don't associate with them. Indeed, some of the rabbis taught that if a tax collector set foot in your home, uh, that would make your whole house, your whole household, in fact, unclean and impure. That's how hated these people were, that's how unclean they were. But in Luke 5, verse 27, we read that Jesus, and this is after healing the paralytic whose friends lowered him through the roof, you remember that story? He sees Levi in his booth, surrounded by his wealth, all those, those coins, and he approaches him and he calls to him and he says, follow me, follow me. And Levi got up, verse 28, left everything and followed him. How do sinners get saved? How do sinners get saved? Well, religion says, some people would say that it's about searching for God and finding him. Well, not with Levi, not at all. And in fact, as we get to know Jesus more, as we read more of God's word, what we see is that sinners get saved not by finding God, but by God finding us through his son. It seems to me that Levi's story is any follower of Jesus' story. What we see in Levi is our own sinful selves. Because until we come to Christ, we are like him in many ways. We, we sit in our toll booth of our sin, trying to get as much as we can for ourselves and not caring too much what we have to do to other people to get it. And, and we'll keep sitting in our sin, going about our business, until Jesus interrupts us like he interrupted Levi. How do sinners like you and me and Levi, get saved? Well, Jesus calls us to himself. Before Levi ever decided to follow God, Jesus decided to make him one of his, one of his followers. Jesus finds us. We don't find him. Can you see why Jesus might hate religion? See, friends, that's the choice of God. 
Jesus calling us to him, it's the heart of grace. It's what grace is all about. A follower of Jesus is chosen by grace. God's love for us which is undeserved. Like Levi, we've done nothing to deserve his love, his choice. In fact, we've done everything to be rejected by him. Yet, if you're a Christian person, he chooses you. Now, theologians call this, and they write books on it, lots of big books. They call this the doctrine of election. Uh, one, uh, chapter 1 of Ephesians is a good chapter uh, to read more about that. It, it says that the Christian person is chosen before the creation of the world. And so the Apostle Paul praises God. It is a wonderful chapter of great praise and thanks to God. Uh, Paul says in the next, next verse following that one that we're predestined, predestined uh, to follow Jesus. And John 15 verse 16, I've got it up on the screen here. Jesus said to his disciples, for example, uh, just before he went to the cross, I did, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. So God not only predestined Levi, but by God's spirit working in him, Jesus called Levi and Levi left his booth and followed Jesus. Indeed, Levi's story tells us much about what it means to follow Jesus. Levi leaves all to follow Jesus. Now, now, Levi, even though he was chosen by God, still had to respond to God in repentance and faith, as, as Jesus commands in verse 32, which he did. And, and, and verse 28 shows that he left everything behind to follow Jesus. That's what repentance is, isn't it? It's a, it's a bit of a religious-y, uh, church-y type word, but let's think about what repentance is. It's, it's leaving behind the old. It's a, it's a definitive break with the old life of sin, no matter what the cost. It's a U-turn. It's chucking a U-E for Jesus. <laughs> That's what I used to call it. Uh, it's a U-turn. We, we turn our back on the wayward way we were travelling. See that? That's what a U-turn is. The call of Jesus takes priority over the old life. I'm, um, I, I'm, I was a big fan of that show, The Biggest Loser. I uh, decided not to put pictures of people up there. Um, but it's a great show. It's, it's inspirational. These amazing people who lose a great deal of weight and get their life on track in that sense physically. Amazing people, very, very brave people too. Uh, I, I, was, I was always inspired by it. Um, they, they're leaving the old life behind and that old life of you know poor diet and lack of exercise and poor self-esteem as well. And they've got no intention of going back. Do they? They don't want to do that at all. They have no intention of going back that way. Indeed, they've even got a new wardrobe. They've got new clothes to put on. Uh, there's a great, um, a great song years ago I, I loved, uh, and these are the words of it. It's got an American guy called Randy Stonehill, a Christian singer-songwriter. He's still around um, in his 60s, I think now, uh, singing really well. He sings about repentance and a new life with Jesus. I just love these words. So I'm packing up my old clothes with my old and foolish ways. They just don't seem to fit me anymore. I see the light of morning with different eyes today and I'm giving my tomorrows to the Lord. Isn't that just a wonderful picture of repentance? I, I'm packing up my old clothes. They're packed away. I don't, I don't need them anymore. My old and foolish ways. They don't seem to fit me anymore. That's what repentance is. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. 
putting our old things aside, packing them up, and I'm giving my tomorrows, giving my todays to the Lord. I reckon we can see two more aspects of following Jesus, though. There's that repentance aspect, aspect we see in this story with Levi. These two more aspects of following Jesus all come about due to this meal that Jesus shares with uh, these tax collectors and sinners. We're told it's a large banquet. I'm not really sure how large, but if, the, if we're told large, we're, we are talking quite big. We're not talking a couple people. We're talking, I, I, who knows, up to 50 or more. Levi isn't stingy. He's not stingy. He doesn't hold back with his worship of, of God and with his thankfulness to Jesus. Uh, he wants to honour Jesus. That's why it's a large gathering. He wants to honour Jesus with everything. He's not stingy with him. He doesn't give him half. He goes the whole, uh, the whole hog. This great feast shows how overjoyed he was to be following Jesus. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, and, and he was so thankful and excited to know Jesus, he couldn't help but tell his friends. He invited the other lowlifes, the other tax collectors, what people called sinners and tax collectors he was accused of. He desperately wanted his friends to know Jesus, to meet Jesus. So he invites Jesus and his friends to, to his house uh, to know him. See, that's the other thing to add here about uh, following Jesus. There's, there's honouring Jesus, there's the repentance, but there's also, once he became a Christian, a follower of Jesus, he was, a, he was an evangelist. He wanted to tell his friends. He couldn't help but declare the praises of him who called him out of darkness into his marvellous light. Uh, to quote another disciple of Jesus, that's Peter. So friends, the story of Levi's conversion is really the story of every believer in Christ. So this is how God saves sinners. First, he chooses us by grace and calls us to follow, follow Christ. By the work of the Holy Spirit, he enables us to turn away from sin and follow Jesus. And as we follow Jesus, we worship God with everything. We proclaim Christ, inviting our friends to meet Jesus so that he can do the same thing, that he did, uh, same thing for them that he did for us. So how's your story if you're a follower of Jesus? How's, how does your story compare with Levi's, I wonder? We've talked about his repentance. We've talked about him honouring Jesus. Uh, we've talked about him telling his friends. How does it compare? Well, you can answer that question as you keep thinking, but we could leave the story there. It's not a bad spot to leave the story. It's quite a nice spot to leave it. But there's much more to say, I think. Uh, now, Levi, by the way, you may, may not know this, Levi was also called Matthew. Uh, Matthew means the gift of God. That makes sense, doesn't it, in terms of his story? But he was also a disciple of Jesus. And Matthew was uh, the author of the first of the four Gospels we have in our New Testaments. Anyway, it's a good spot to leave the story, but we won't do that. This great banquet he hosts is a fairly controversial one. And it, it tells us much about Levi and much about these religious Pharisees, much about Jesus, much about us. So let's keep looking at this. In verse 30, we read that sometime later, the Pharisees heard about this meal. Now, there's no way. There probably should be a, a, um, a new paragraph there uh, in verse 30. But there, there's no way that these Pharisees would have attended a meal like this. Not a chance in the world. Um, so they would have heard about it. Now, whether they heard about it at the time it was happening, 
and then went to the disciples of Jesus, but the disciples of Jesus probably would have been there. So most likely, this, these Pharisees have approached Jesus' disciples after the meal sometime, uh, and they grumbled. That's the word. So we're on point two in our outline here, uh, controversy over association and uh, mission. Let's pick things up from verse 29. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? This uh, great banquet was outreach to the outcasts. It was outsiders invited to become insiders with Jesus. And as I said, it was a large crowd. But the issue the Pharisees had was not with the party itself, but was who, who was on the guest list. That was the issue. The controversy was one of association and sharing a meal with someone. For the Jews, that was an expression of spiritual fellowship. If you shared a meal with someone, that was very significant. Uh, it, it said something spiritually. Even today in the Middle East, if you share a meal with someone, it, it's, it's about fellowship. It's more than just friendship. It's something closer than that. Well, the Pharisee says, you just don't eat with those types. You don't do that. See, we know that the friends we choose, the friends we keep, says something about us. We know that, don't we? I think we do. Uh, Proverbs teaches us that friends influence us for good or bad, for wise or foolish. So we, so we choose, uh, the friends we choose says something about us. Likewise, we who share, who we share or don't share the gospel with also says something about us. Don't you think? It would have been much safer for Levi to invite better company. Much safer. For, invite, to, for, to, for Levi to invite some Pharisees. No controversy there. Or to, to Levi to invite the rich, those who dress nice. Or for Levi to invite um, some influential people, very safe. But no, no, no. Levi invites nobodies. He invites outcasts, ones just like him, so just like him they can follow Jesus too. Have you thought to yourself, or maybe even out loud, you've thought with friends, oh, they would never believe in Jesus. Oh, nah. No, that, that, he would never become a Christian. No way. As if he'd come into church. No. There's no way he would be interested. They're so anti-God. Well, perhaps we might even say, well, they don't belong in church. Or they don't deserve to hear the gospel. Do you know what she did? It seems to me the account of Levi teaches us to say otherwise. That no one is beyond the call of Jesus. No one. And Levi knew this. We ought to know it too. Well, the Pharisees, it seems, were uh, too gutless <laughs> to question Jesus, so they went and asked his disciples, they grumbled, as the actual word, why did you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? See verse 30 and verse 31, Jesus answered them, well, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
We're on our last point on our outline. Now, apparently, um, apparently the statistics are that women are three times more likely to visit a doctor than men. Now, if you're sitting with your husband right now, please don't nudge him or, or say anything. Keep your eyes focused on me and we'll all be okay. Um, three times more likely. There you go. Now, one could conclude, therefore, about men that when it comes to their health, that we're a little bit overconfident, I don't know, um, naive, stupid, uh, I don't know, you decide. You can have that fight with your spouse another time. Um, any doctor will tell you ignoring the symptoms is our greatest killer. And whether it's cancer, whether it's heart disease, uh, whether it's mental health. But perhaps there is something worse. Uh, in arrogance, I don't know if that's the right word, um, a sick person may ignore or not accept the doctor's diagnosis and subsequent treatment. That's pretty silly, isn't it? Friends, religion says, and blindly, I'm good enough, I don't need a doctor. I'm healthy, I don't need Jesus. Uh, like these Pharisees, Jesus quotes with a, dose, a good dose of irony. The Pharisees, Jesus says, well, I'm righteous. I don't need a doctor. But the truth is we all need Dr. Jesus. Because we're all sinners. No one is righteous, not even one, Romans 3 says. And this is why Jesus came. This is his mission. The Pharisees did not get that. His mission is to offer a cure for the spiritually sick and dying. People like Levi. Before Jesus called him. Jesus offers a cure for our pride, our lust, our greed. The cure is found in the gospel. Forgiveness for our sin through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Religion says do enough. Actually, it says do more. That's what really religion says. But Jesus says on the cross, I've done all that's needed. And that means a follower of Jesus, when we put our trust in him, can be absolutely sure of where we're going, where we stand with God. Because God's son has done all that is needed. Jesus says we can only have this cure when we accept the doctor's diagnosis, recognising our spiritual condition as we come to him in repentance and faith. And like Levi, when we follow Jesus, well, it's not stingy, is it? It ought not to be. It's not half-hearted. It's generous. We want to honour Jesus with everything. And it's ongoing. And we love to get involved in the lives of other sinners so they too can come to know Jesus. How about I pray? And uh, we'll, we'll see if there's any questions or comments and then um, we'll continue our service. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... Um, uh, well, we thank you for, Jesus, that you called Levi. And Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy that, when we, that, that you have called us as Christian people, those who follow Jesus. Lord, we, uh, we pray that... Um, we can respond a little like Levi does, honouring Jesus. And maybe that does mean we throw big parties at our houses with, um, with uh, other people. <laughs> but, Lord, we, we pray that you'd help us with that. Um, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you died on the cross for us. We thank you that you've dealt with our sin once and for all. We pray that today we would indeed want to follow you and honour you with everything. In Jesus' name, amen.